0: Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Today I have a great lineup. First, I speak to Eva Putsova, a former Flagstaff City Council member who helped raise the minimum wage and progressive Democrat running for Congress in Arizona's 1st District on Medicare for all, the Green New Deal and no more wars. Then I speak to Brent Welder, a member of the DNC Rules Committee and a former congressional candidate for Kansas's District 3. And then we're joined by Brianna Joy Gray, a journalist and former press secretary for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, who argues that litmus tests are extremely important and should be applied to Joe Biden. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Also, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Show. Again, it's patreon.com slash the Show. This week's Patreon-only episode is a continuation of my chat with Brianna Joy Gray and Brent Wildner, as well as a great discussion with Jack Allison, co-host of the Struggle Session Podcast, and happy three-year anniversary to them. Also, the host of Jack AM, a show on Twitch. Eva Puzova's race is August 4th, so if you're listening to this on August 4th, make sure you spread the word, check out her campaign. Also, I just want to give some shout-outs to other people who are running for office, and are progressive, and that includes Corey Bush, Kara Eastman, Rashida Tlaib, Jen Perlman, Rebecca Parsons, Solomon Rajput. So Eva Putsova, uh, welcome to the show and tell us why you are running for Congress in Arizona's first district. Yes, thank you so very
1: much for having me and uh, hello everybody. Yes, this is my first time on Katie's show. And it's very exciting so i'm running in arizona's first congressional district because frankly uh the current uh congressman has failed to champion people's issues and he has time and time over prioritized corporations over people uh, whether it comes to healthcare, climate change immigration or any number of issues uh, it's clear that we need uh, new leadership and actually, we need people who are not going to be bought by corporate interests and who have political courage. And that's why I'm running for this seat.
0: And uh, you're actually part of Matriarch. You've been endorsed by Matriarch, right? Which is this kind of uh, uh, Emily's List alternative. Yes,
1: uh, yes, and Matriarch.
0: Had, yeah, and we had Nomiki Konst on the other day, and she's, of course, a board member. And they, I think, exist to basically fund women who are progressive who aren't already extremely rich so that people can run for uh, office and even win uh, without having their own, having the exorbitant amount of money needed. Yeah, MetroPAC has been a great
1: uh, supporting organization. Uh, We have a number of uh, other organizations that have supported us. And it is their encouragement and kind of a community of candidates that uh, they support that allows us to exchange experiences and just kind of build on each other's knowledge as we run these campaigns, which are complex, difficult, and of course, you know, require money and we are raising every single dollar from individual donors. We take absolutely no corporate packs, and we have not taken actually any political action committees packs, not even those that are not tied to corporations. Wow.
0: And tell us about your opponent, and how long has he been a Democrat?
1: My opponent, uh, he's a co-chair of Blue Dogs. He is has been a lifelong Republican. Um, I should say he was lifelong right. Republican until he decided to run for Congress in this congressional district, uh, one, because This district tends to vote for Democrats, so he switched parties in 2016 or for the 2016 election, got elected to Congress, and then voted with Trump 54% of the time in that first term.
0: Wow. Better than a... Josh Gottheimer I guess who's voted with him for over 70 but that's your that should not be the bar being better than one of the worst uh, members of Congress the most reactionary trump loving members of Congress so your opponent is up there and tell us what made you consider running
1: so after 2000 after the 2008 crisis it became clear that uh, our uh, government bailed out uh, corporations and wealthy and the regular people were left behind. Um, I ran for the local city council um, here in Flagstaff, Arizona in 2014 because I wanted to make a, a difference at the local level. And my top issue uh, on which I ran was uh, to raise the minimum wage, the local minimum wage in Flagstaff. And uh, because I didn't have the vote on the city council and for the first two years, it was, a, it was quite a conservative majority had, you know, on the council. I run a local citizen initiative through which we raise the minimum wage in up to $15.50 per hour, and also we raise the subminimum tipped wage. Uh, of course, as you know, throughout those four years, and as you're serving uh, locally and dealing with all of local issues, it becomes clear that there are so many uh, issues that uh, the local government doesn't have the jurisdiction over, like immigration. Uh, And it became clear that even on issues like healthcare or climate change, what we really need is a leadership at the federal level. And that's why I'm running, I support Medicare for All, I support the Green New Deal. I want to see a complete immigration overhaul. And importantly, in this district, it's so important that we finally start prioritizing the interests of the indigenous people of this country who have been neglected, neglected. Uh, pushed to the very edge of the society. And it's time that we put first people first.
0: What's your life story? How did you get involved Mm -hmm. in politics?
1: I grew up in Slovakia. Everybody can tell that I'm an immigrant. I was 12 years old in 1989. And so that year uh, kind of formed me as a political human being and instilled in me uh, the ideals of democracy and uh, justice and equality, and uh, so that kind of um, made me makes me always think about, you know, what we're doing in this country and how our own government um, do does things that are the same things that a totalitarian government would do. Uh, we see that in Portland, right in Oregon, with Trump's administration. I mean, sending. Uh, federal agents on your own people. That's exactly what KGB, Stasi, or, you know, in Czechoslovakia, it was STB that they did to their own people. I came to the U.S. because first I wanted to learn the language and just be immersed in the culture. Uh, I ended up uh, immigrating kind of accidentally because my partner at the time uh, had college debt and I was free. I got my college education completely paid by taxpayers in Slovakia. And I was free to move, maybe not uh, uh, financially uh, well off, but I was at least uh, able to move wherever um, I wanted. So that's how I ended up in the United States. And, and, and you know, I was always been very active as, you know, as a child growing up. And ultimately, you know, you don't change as a person. And so um, my parents were quite active. My father was um, a chair of a, a kind of county's Democratic Party in uh, the post-1989 uh, Slovakia, and my mother was a uh, local uh, union leader. She was a teacher, and so she led the local union, teachers'
0: union. Right, and uh, tell us what is happening in your uh, where you are, mm-hmm. and especially to to everyone, but also especially to the indigenous people mm-hmm. in terms of COVID and and the rates there.
1: So the the tribal communities have been ignored for decades and decades, really just centuries, right? Uh, first, it wasn't just being ignored. I mean, the, you know, the, the government tried to annihilate them and you know displace them, dislocate them. And uh, um, because of all the issues we have like on the Navajo Nation, for example, 30% of people don't have running water, 15,000 households don't have electricity, and hundreds of miles of roads are unpaid. And we have not invested in the indigenous communities healthcare or education. And so These shortages in all these areas just exacerbate uh, the problem that um, was brought by the pandemic. And it hit the reservation very hard. And um, people are um, dying and they're being hospitalized at a much higher rate, completely unnecessary because of all those uh, official policies uh, of um, discrimination And the lack of interest in prioritizing uh, fixing of this very basic infrastructure.
0: And what is your the population where you live, where Mm you that you're representing? What kind of uh, demographics? Are there?
1: So, Arizona's first congressional district is one of the largest, I think it's 11th largest in the district, and it has the largest Native American population of any district in the country. 25% of all people who reside within the district boundaries are Native Americans. There are actually 13 different tribes. Uh, so it's quite diverse um, population. Uh, this district uh, politically leans democratic. We've had a Democrat uh, elected to Congress every single time since last redistricting, and by larger margin. So the question really is not about uh, you know flipping uh, the district. The question is what kind of Democrat we're going to send to Washington D.C. And I do believe that people are fed up with. Um, representatives who are bought by corporate interests and we have to not only change the policies uh of course we have to change those but we have to change the rules of politics and we have to uh actually elect people who want to see regular people to do well and uh not those ultra wealthy few or just those ultra wealthy few i'm not saying that they shouldn't be taken (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah um and so the the population that's uh, not to sound like a eugenicist or something, but the population that is not indigenous. What 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 are they?
1: So you know, it is a sterile majority white population in this district. Um, we have a Latino population that's sizable as well, and uh, you know, very small black community. Uh, but those are. You know, again, it's the native population that dominates. We probably have 20, I would say 20, maybe up to 25% of our Latina community. Uh, so that, you know, immigration is a big issue um, in Arizona and certainly in this district. And, uh, you know, we've seen um, ice rates and just how incredibly uh, cruel, uh, inhumane uh, our uh, immigration system is.
0: Part of why I asked is I was wondering if there are attempts by either your opponent or Republicans or conservatives or people in general, politicians, to kind of divide and conquer, to, like, turn different Mm -hmm. groups against each other?
1: Well, what I've heard from the establishment, and this is all on the Democratic side— uh, is, you know, they're, they're selling people fear. It's like, oh, we have to be, this district cannot elect a progressive. Right. Um, we have to uh, vote for O'Halloran, he's uh, the incumbent, uh, because in a way that's the best we can do. It's not that they even um, uh, you know support him because of the policies that he uh, promotes or the votes that he casts. It's because, well, that's the best. We worry about losing the seat right. as if the seat didn't belong to people. As if, you know, I think this is the problem that we have in today's world when, you know, it's either one party or the other party. Sometimes we uh, hear about this whole wonderful bipartisanship when what we really need is to thinking about transpartisanship, partisanship thinking right. about what's good for the people and stop talking about these seats as if they belong to a party right
0: right. part of like a or a dynasty bill clinton the other day speaking at john lewis's funeral and he thanked james claiborne who was in the audience for with the stroke of a hand uh, ending the intra part intra-family party war or something i mean we know that that happened we know that the clintons wanted bernie to be destroyed defeated but it was just such entitlement to hear him say that out loud
1: Mm-hmm. And and also at the funeral, you know, during eulogy, Yeah. Uh, we have essentially two parties that, you know, are run by the same corporate interests. People like to say, oh, this candidate puts um, people's interests over parties' interests, but that's not usually true. <laughs> they just support corporations and that has to end. Like, how do we want... Uh, to overturn uh, Citizens United when we continue to elect the same people who benefit from dark money.
0: And uh, it's really cool because your website, if you go to your website, you have a a list of COVID-19 resources like at the top of the page. How has that changed the way you're running and the election?
1: So this this trip, because it's so large, um, it's probably the COVID-19 crisis has not changed our um, tactics too much. We knew that we cannot, um, you know, win by just canvassing. I mean, we have been canvassing and knocking on the doors before the pandemic, because we've started this campaign very early, knowing that, of course, the best way to reach people is to reach them at their doors and talk to them in person. But that's not really a sustainable strategy to win in this giant district when it takes eight hours to drive from um, north to south. And so um, in a way, this COVID-19 forced us to be very... Um, focused <laughs> really preserve some of our um, resources and energy you know we've been um, calling voters texting voters um, and of course you know we've been trying to raise money to support uh, the entire campaign because um, you cannot run a successful campaign without um, decent budget you know we don't need a gazillion dollars like a you know, these corporate candidates, they raise so much and then they spend it quickly on, you know, in areas where um, one can argue it's complete waste.
0: Right. Um, and yeah, you're, I love your the issues because you're, you're Medicare for All, uh, First People First, which is um, your program for indigenous people, um, tuition-free college, workers' rights, LGBTQ rights, a Green New Deal, reproductive health, immigration overhaul, but also you got... No more wars. Uh, Absolutely.
1: it's. I think it's very important for us Americans to realize uh, the power we have in the world. And, you know, we have to be careful with that power. Um, we've been now in wars for 17 years. Uh, and I just think it's incredible, you know, the amount of resources when you think about that we spend on these wars. And... Uh, The terror that, you know, those wars then inflict on uh, those local um, uh, communities um, outside of this country. And at the same time, the vulnerabilities that we have are inside, you know, in the United States. I mean, that's the national, if we really care about national security, if we really care, then we start looking at our uh, utilities at our electric grid, at data, and as we have seen with this COVID-19, at public health. That's a huge, huge vulnerability that we are not able as a country to control the spread of the virus.
0: Yeah, and uh, I know it, and I'd re, it would be great if the Democrats were actually responding to what people want like Medicare for all, instead of just being kind of low-key Trumpian about this or just running on not being as evil as Trump. Um, One more question. I don't know if you have time. Do you have time for one more question? One more, yeah. Okay, so uh, have you encountered, uh, I don't know where most people assume that you're from, but have you encountered uh, any like russophobia yes uh, some, like. yeah
1: of, yeah you know for I, I i clearly have a eastern european accent and for most people you know that is um they're all russians <laughs> and you know i think that just reflects uh how media talks about russia you know we're not talking about putin's administration right but we are talking about oftentimes in the mainstream media about the russians and we are um demonizing entire group of people and the public then gets the message that you know people from this part of the world are bad and then everybody who sounds like they are from eastern europe who could in their mind be russians they're um you know painted as some as as somebody who's bad and russian people are not bad there's nothing wrong there is no group of people that are bad, they can have a horrible um, administration, horrible, horrible government. You know, right. like, like, you know, in the United States, Trump's administration is horrible. But I don't think anybody would say that Americans are bad. And so, maybe. yeah, so... so I'm, you could, find,
0: you could <laughs> so, find some people, but yeah.
1: Maybe, but, but it's a, but that's, you know, it, it's a reality. I and, mean, you know, we are all humans. And so we project on others um, yeah. all kinds of um, biases and but, thoughts um and so but you know on the other hand it's also something that can start the conversation you know my accent oftentimes yeah. is the reason why people want to talk to me so
0: yeah um and how is it manifested do people just say is it come yeah, up so, like they judgmental yeah, of you, they, they call you yeah names? there is
1: yeah they have a negative connotation because of that accent because of right. my accent sometimes no i, I shouldn't say i shouldn't right. generalize it yeah. it just I encountered yeah. a few of those uh, negative connotation uh, like oh she sounds Russian and then immediately tying me to uh, Russian bots or uh, you know Putin and you know like it's it's all you know because of the impression we created sure, and right. it's not it's not just you know the recent right um, but it's also you know we cannot forget forty years of Cold War right. right? Same so that, that continues. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But thank you so much. And uh, what, what else do you want to make sure people know? Thank you so much for well, your time. Yes.
1: I, I just would like to invite everybody to follow us, of course, on Twitter and uh, visit our website, evaforcongress.com. We have uh, two precious days to make a difference. And if you can join our volunteers, there's a volunteer sign up uh, on our website as well. Thank you so much for Thank the you. opportunity to talk to you.
0: Thank Thanks you. so much. And that was Eva Putsova. She is a progressive Democrat running for Congress in Arizona's First District. You can follow her on Twitter at Eva Putsova. That's E-V-A-P-U-T-Z-O-V-A. Go to her website, Eva for Congress. Now I talk to Brent Welder. Brent Welder is a former congressional candidate. He ran in Kansas's third district. He also was appointed to the DNC Rules Committee by Bernie Sanders.
2: Four years ago, I I put forth an amendment to the platform committee that Bernie had um, nominated me to to uh, to say that as a party we should stand for getting money entirely out of politics. Um, didn't go well. <laughs> In fact, they, uh, they had a, a corporate lobbyist uh, was the first person to speak against my amendment, right. which um, at the time I thought was hilarious and was probably some sort of terrible, terrible mistake, right? This time around, Bernie nominated me to the rules committee, and I put forth an amendment to say that the DNC should reject corporate PAC money and ban lobbyists from serving on the DNC. And what do you know, the first person they, they found uh, to uh, speak against it was a corporate lobbyist. And the way that I know is because he talked about it during uh, during his speech. So, you know, I don't know whether they just literally cannot find somebody that's not a corporate lobbyist on these committees uh, to speak against it. I don't know whether they think that's some kind of good messaging for them. Um, but uh, then they used corrupt tactics and rigged voting to try to sink my, my anti-corruption amendment um, so that there was no record of the vote. So it, it's...
0: So they wanted to show and not tell.
2: Exactly. Or exactly.
0: actually not show show the the corruption, but not show what actually happened. So yeah, can you explain that a little bit more?
2: Of course. So, so, you know, I ran for Congress in 2018 here in Kansas, and um, I was actually the one that came up with the um, no corporate PAC money pledge that everybody has heard so much about from Probably hundreds, if not thousands of candidates at all level of government. It's a, it's a big issue for me, something I've been an activist on for a long time. And so when uh, Bernie nominated me to the rules committee for the DNC, this time, I wanted to continue to try to root corruption out of the, out of the DNC, which there's a lot of it to root out. And, um, so, uh, you know, and this meeting, they, they, they used the COVID-19 tragedy for their own political gain in a way to make the the meetings even more rigged and scripted than they ever have been before. Um, so much so that those of us on the committee weren't even able technologically to, to talk to the chairman of the committee because they stuck all of us in this separate room. And the only way they would even turn your mic on to talk to the chairman or to go over the live stream was if they, you know, graced you with the ability, if you were literally in the script that was already scripted out beforehand, right? Well, so then they, and through all these other heavy-handed tactics, they got all the progressives to, you know, withdraw a whole bunch of amendments, all this kind of stuff. So they were just going one by one, you know, a Bernie person would put up an amendment, they'd vote it down, they'd move on to the next one, there'd be a new amendment, they'd vote it down, they'd move on to the next one. Well, I had been contacted by kind of an intermediary uh, from the Biden campaign before the meeting saying that the Biden campaign was particularly pissed off about my particular amendments to um, stop corporate PAC money and ban corporate lobbyists. Um, I was asked to, you know, withdraw them. I politely declined to do so. Um, And when they got to my amendment, I expected them to do what they had done to the others. Let me present it. Let me give my speech, vote it down, move on to the next one. Uh, however, what they did was, they, I did my speech, they opened up voting, so I went over to the voting machine or voting device that they give us, which had been working perfectly fine throughout the entire meeting. Of course, I wanted to vote yes on my own amendment. I, I, what do you know? It wasn't working. Kept checking back. As this lobbyist is droning on, I'm checking back. It's not working. It's not working. At the time, I just thought, well, maybe it really is just some kind of technical error. All of a sudden, the the lobbyist um, makes a motion to table my amendment. Which you know, I'm no parliamentary procedure expert. I really didn't exactly know what the the ramifications of that would be. Are they are they tabling it till like next convention four years from now? What on earth is this? Well, but luckily they had and so and then all of a sudden they start voting on this tabling motion in the middle of what was supposed to be the vote on my amendment. Which I'm not sure that that's even proper. However, they accidentally left my microphone on um, for the live stream. And so I was able to immediately start protesting that and saying, this makes no sense. What are we doing here? Tabling until when? Why don't we just have an up and down vote? Um, Immediately after I did that, uh, Barney Frank, who's the chairman who's on the board of a big bank, um, he explained that. You know, tabling means that if there is no successful motion to untable at any point, it's going to die with the committee, which was going to be 15 minutes later. Then they immediately shoved me back in this room. They realized their mistake. They left my microphone on. I get into the room with all the Biden and Bernie, you know, the virtual room with all the Biden and Bernie committee people and the 50 um, Bernie uh, uh, members are going berserk talk about how unfair it is trying to call for a motion to untable it although obviously it's falling on literally deaf ears because they can't hear hear them um and there was so much uh, pushback and and it was just sustained at that point forward for the next like 10 minutes as they continued to try to do the business of the committee that ultimately at the end uh first the chairperson said they were going to um uh, you know, end the meeting, and then all of a sudden they say, "Oh, wait, wait, wait! We, we actually, I guess they they got enough pressure that they decided to have a vote to untable it." Um, that uh, miraculously won for one reason or another. I think literally because the Biden committee members knew how corrupt and terrible it looked, um, but then ultimately, of course, they voted down my amendment. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's how that, that all played out. <laughs>
0: that's kind of the perfect metaphor, right? They give you like a, the illusion of democracy or uh, fairness, just like on something this big. And then ultimately, though, they deprive you of it. Um, oh. I, I saw you. Uh, it's funny. I reached out. We were talking about having you on. And then after that, I saw you on Jimmy Dore.
1: Oh, oh yeah. And
0: uh, it's funny because, you know, Jimmy is like he gets so much crap and. He really knows his stuff like he under he he was explaining. I was like, what is he talking about? All these real, he's like, you he knew that Obama was going to do that. He passed this. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's very uh, elucidating and uh, <laughs> enlightening. But uh, he was getting, you know, and I got to say this, this is feeling more and more appealing to me. And it's funny because most of my guests don't think this, but the whole like, why even bother? what are we doing by not just like voting for Biden, but saying we're voting for Biden? Is that at all strategic? And it's actually, my guest later on, it's perfect, because she wrote this piece called In Defense of Litmus Test, which argues that Blue, no matter who is him, actually is not just like morally bankrupt, but is is hurting uh, the chances of, uh, you know, pushing, obviously, it's hurting the chances of pushing Biden to the left, but ultimately, probably of defeating Trump. So... Uh, the question there is, uh, how do you, yeah, what do you? what's the plan now?
2: Well, I mean, and, and you know, that's a really good point. So, you know, wh- one thing that I keep hearing um, uh, among the, the more establishment folks or even just honestly well-meaning voters when they've been seeing all of this situation kind of first blow up and then I've been, on you know, invited on a number of podcasts to talk about it and stuff is they say, well, you know, don't we re- you know, we really need that corporate PAC money. Let's just use it to get Trump out and then you know let's maybe we can you know ban it after that but there, there's two problems with that one is every single f- four years that we hate yeah. the republican right they don't get any better um, the other thing though is that The obvious point that by banning the the corporate influence and the lobbyists and the and the bad money, it actually will make our chances better for winning the election, which I don't know why they can't get that through their minds. I mean, you know, the example that I actually go back to is Donald Trump himself. Hillary had messed. twice the amount of money as he did, right? But clearly with the American people, his message resonated more. He he was kind of like a truth teller without the truth. But if you don't have a truth teller with the truth to counteract the truth teller without the truth, and if they don't trust our nominee, then they're never they're not going to vote for us and our chances of winning are going to go down dramatically and there's no amount of money and it was proven in 2016 she had hundreds of millions of dollars what a half a billion dollars more than him whatever it was whatever it was and he is a clown he is a right. jackass and he was even less credible then than he is now he was a joke right, right. and we couldn't even beat the biggest joke on the face of the earth Uh, in an election because they don't trust us. They don't trust the Democratic Party. And um, so, you know, we don't don't need their corporate money, quite the opposite, we need to reject the money and then we can start not only winning elections, but then not have corrupt government officials so we can actually start solving all these problems that are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, You know, now under COVID, a million times worse than it was before.
0: Now in this segment, Brianna Joy Gray joins me and Brent Welder. Uh, Well, this is Brianna Troy Gray, everyone, and uh, former uh, Bernie Sanders press secretary, uh, journal, former Intercept political editor, and now with um, Current Affairs. And she wrote a great piece called In Defense of Litmus Tests, and that deals with a lot of what we're talking about. Um, And you argue that, you know, it's not helping uh, the Dems defeat Trump uh, to not push Biden. To the left.
3: Yeah, I think the the crucial observation I think that everyone who is a leftist who identified with progressive movements, the Bernie campaign, and much more broader, much broader than that, um, is that there is the subtext to everyone who tells us that we need to stop pushing Biden. The subtext to everyone who tells us that we're somehow voting for Trump if we leverage any levy in any criticism in Biden's direction. Is that if Biden were to concede to the demands of the left, and which are in fact the demands of the overwhelming majority of Democrats, and in many cases the majority of Americans, regardless of political party, but it would somehow disadvantage him in the general election contest, right? So don't the the, the, the push is to say, don't don't say anything at all about Biden because you are enabling Trump's victory by doing so. But the reality is when you look at the fact. That when you go down policy proposal after policy proposal, prescription after prescription, that overwhelming majorities of people actually want Biden to do those things. Then it becomes clear that the issue, the factor that is skewing the election for Trump is not, in fact, us asking for these basic things from Biden, but Biden's refusal to acquiesce. And so if we are to raise these issues and Biden chooses not to respond by embracing these overwhelmingly popular policies, the onus is on him in the general election. But what they're doing is flipping the script and pretending that we live in a world where we're asking for radical, bizarre things that would somehow disadvantage him. And in doing so, they're able to silence what is an overwhelming supermajority of Americans we are living through a time of unprecedented crisis, frankly, where the need for things like Medicare for all, um, decriminalization of marijuana, have never been more obvious. Um, And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to start shifting that burden and being really clear about the fact that what we're asking for is, in fact, for Biden to position himself better against Trump by drawing stronger contrasts and advocating for the policies that average Americans want.
2: That's the most sensible thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, God.
0: And and to that point, I mean, do you think that I think people have like understandable PTSD from Trump's win? Even people who are very critical of Biden from the left and and were Bernie people, but I think some people f- have like internalized guilt as if it's their fault for um, supporting the candidate who would have won. I think obviously we don't know, but I I always thought that he was. Um, more electable than Hillary Clinton, not always. Once I like found once he's you know started running and, and went from three uh, percent name recognition or whatever he started at, <laughs> um, but uh, that I think a lot of people like you say they automatically concede or prematurely have conceded uh, their support and they kind of announce it. And you, Bree, you 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 have an amazing um, you recall this amazing moment where uh, Elizabeth Warren. Was uh, at the debates, and she said, um, "I'd like to talk about who we're running against—a billionaire who calls women fat broads and horseface lesbians." And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. And then you say it was a sharp and effective volley, but the impact was dimmed somewhat by the disclaimer uttered in the same breath: "quote I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is." End quote. So. Yeah what is that people feeling pressure is that their genuine belief that they really need to say that and again it's like i even even if you think that that's what's going to happen even if you're prepared to vote blue no matter who why are people advertising it right
3: so this gets down to this question of leverage
0: and for the average
3: voter um the 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 consequences, the positioning of people who are in Congress um, is a little bit different than the average ver- voter. Right. Literally the only leverage we have in the world is our vote. Um, and that example was particularly um, important to me because that occurred, the the, the the fidelity pledge to vote no matter who, even if it were Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg was extracted from people, from voters and candidates alike, So long before it was anything near an inevitability that Michael Bloomberg would be in the race. So by conceding so early that you would be willing to vote for a candidate like that, you're basically accepting, you're putting out into the world that voters should consider him to be a legitimate, viable Democratic candidate, which from my perspective, he should never have been. He is someone who was a Republican until recently. And who wasn't just a republican in name as though that's like fundamentally toxic in of itself but the policies that he supported were conservative he um is the poster child for a racially motivated stop and frisk policy in new york city in new york state in new york city but what makes him aligned across the state and beyond for anybody who ever had the um misfortune of having to exist here as a black and brown person in a certain age bracket. You know, I've witnessed my brother be stopped and frisked during the time period as someone who moved to New York as a teenager in 2001. So, you know, the idea that now we're in the middle of a um, massive movement for black lives where criminal justice reform is front and center on the minds of millions of Americans. um, When we had people plausibly discussing Michael Bloomberg as a candidate um, was incredibly bizarre, especially when we had so many um, uh, eligible, exciting candidates at play. And so imagine a world in which all of the rest of the candidates had been united in their response and said, frankly, I don't think that Michael Bloomberg deserves to be on this stage. Frankly, I don't think that he um, it should be in any way considered to be a legitimate representative of the Democratic Party. But by not doing so, Democrats increasingly allow their brand to be co-opted and shift us farther and farther to the right. And every year, and this is something I argue in the piece, every year Democrats say that we are up against the most fascistic, right-wing, threatening Republican candidate in our lives. And the fact of the matter is, more often than not, they're right. But there's a reason why we are always in this position. And it's because we never outline any kind of floor, any kind of barrier, any kind of litmus test um, that that should satisfy Democratic voters um, before they're willing to throw their vote at just anyone. And the consequence of that is that we go farther and farther and farther to the right, because the literal floor of the Democratic Party is just a hair's breadth above Donald Trump's head. And that's not where we should be. It's not where we need to be. And in fact, I think by doing that, by allowing Joe Biden to um, run uh, uh, and ignore policies and also um, make choices, like having so many um, corporate lobbyists, healthcare lobbyists, et cetera, so close to him in his senior advisor team, he's opening himself up to criticisms that are going to be legitimate from Trump that we've seen him leverage at Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, And also, he's abandoning a whole suite of policy proposals that could get him the kind of excitement, volunteer-based, investment, donor-based, that's a non-corporate, non-super PAC donor base, that Bernie Sanders enjoyed, and would, in fact, make him a more electable candidate. So in my view, the people who are enabling Trump, the people who are um, making it easier for him to win and harder for Biden are the folks that are holding Biden to such a low, low standard.
2: All right. And, you know, if I can pitch in here, um, the types of voters that the Democrats would win if they were taking Brianna's advice are probably exactly the um, the types that people would be least likely to expect. Um, I say that as somebody from Kansas, who where is a very populist state. In fact, it was the birth of the populist movement. Yeah. The very voters that actually we can win with, you know, for instance, economic populist ideas are the ones that voted that voted very uh, fervently for Donald Trump. You know, frankly, a lot of them voted for Obama and then Trump. A lot of them. Maybe didn't even vote for Obama and voted for Trump. But if they have one candidate who agrees with them on the social issues and another candidate who doesn't agree, who doesn't really stand for anything, they're going to every time go to the one with the social issues. But if you give them an alternative of somebody that agrees with them on their pocketbook, especially right now during a recession that's headed to a depression, we can absolutely win those voters. And it's not, you know, yes, you know, it's not it, the The idea of the swing voter completely changes because are we going to win a bunch of like corporate Republicans, maybe a few of whom crossed over to vote for Hillary that way? No, maybe we'll even lose some of their votes. But we'll win. There's so many overwhelmingly more of the populist voters than there are of the one percent voters that we can get and attract if we, you know, were to take her advice.
3: Yeah. And, and what's so frustrating is I've been I think a lot about this and why it is that there's this this misunderstanding about what it means to get a swing voter. Um, you know, in this kind of, there's this expectation that if you are attractive to a certain kind of white working class voter, that it must be because you are throwing the democratic base under the bus as a Women, award. people,
0: color, LGBTQ people, right? That's the exactly, narrative. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Exactly. And I understand why that narrative exists because historically that has been the way that a certain kind of, um, white voter has been, um, solicited, but yeah. that kind of voter isn't the voter, you know? What is happening is that corporate Democrats are willing to concede to cuts in Social Security, are willing to downplay a whole host of social issues that are enormously important to mar- historically marginalized groups in order to go after an affluent white moderate voter, the voter that Chuck Schumer famously said in 2016 we're going to get in Connecticut or what have you. Um, but on the other hand, when you are able, when you're reaching out for voters who have an overwhelming overlap of interest with historically marginalized voters, because so many of the um, ways that d- historical demis- demis- uh, discrimination is manifest is through these economic ways, right? And the inability to stay housed and afford rent and inability to access um, social programs and, you know, all of these health um, care, health care. <laughs> You know, when you're able to attract people by actually reaching for those material goals, you don't have to start throwing anybody in the bus. You actually just have to fulfill what the original promise that the Democratic Party was supposed to be, which is to be this party of labor and this party of the people. But I do wanna I do wanna do wanna acknowledge that there is there are like I think reasonable historical reasons why a lot of Democrats are skeptical and frustrated by this idea that Um, you know, we can reach out to this working-class white voter because for so long that rhetoric has been a dog whistle. But we cannot allow those bad actors to strip away our ability to talk about working-class voters who are, in fact, overwhelmingly female and non-white, right? We can't allow them to appropriate that language and then inhibit our ability to speak to the base that is, in fact, the base, this this beautiful, working-class, diverse, um working class um, uh, base that is in fact, additionally comprised of white working class Americans. I and mean, we can't, you know, the, the Field Sisters talk a lot about this in Racecraft and this idea that we are helping to reify these racial um, group, this, this kind of racialized, vulkanization along political lines by talking about Trump as a president for white people and then talking about Dem- Democrats as the candidates for people of color. Without kind of acknowledging the larger amount of nuance there, and saying Trump is the candidate for affluent people who are overwhelmingly white, and Democrats should be the party for working class people who are disproportionately non-white, but also do do a lot of good for any white voters who are feeling understandably um, neglected by the Republican Party.
2: And and I was the, yeah, I think I was the first one to introduce the topic of a swing voter in this conversation, but you know it, I would be remiss to not point out that there are, what, 100 million people that did not vote uh, Mm -hmm. in the last presidential election. And they've, and I guarantee you, by definition, most of them are not in the 1%. Almost all of them are in the 99%, right? And there are so, so, so exorbitantly many more um, of these non-voters than there are any amount of swing voters. Um, And, and, and you know, also often they are in the classes of people that aren't, that, feel for good reason, because they're absolutely right, that they have absolutely no voice whatsoever. And if if we were even just the party that just made them feel like they had a voice um, or, or felt like, or made them feel like they could trust anything that our leaders have to say whatsoever, I, I feel like they would flock to, to, you know, uh, support our candidates, even if they disagreed with us on various issues or not um, you know, that that's, by far the key to success, I think, as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. Don't forget to become Patreon subscribers and you'll be able to access more of my chat with Brent Waldner and Brianna Joy Gray, as well as my chat with Jack Allison, co-host of Struggle Session Podcast and the Twitch show, Jack A.M.